We count it a great blessing and privilege to be able to worship with you today. We're very thankful for this church as I teach at the seminary, how you've had various interns and mentored them here and participated in their development for ministry. I'm also especially appreciative because Dr. Belcher, as I went away from many decades of pastoral ministry to try to learn how to be a seminary professor. He's been my mentor and a great friend to me. I'm also grateful for Pastor Dixon, who after I tried to teach the first preaching course, he straightened them out in the labs after me. And so I'm appreciative of that as well. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to begin with a question, and that is, What are your great hopes and dreams for the future? Now, I have seminary students around me all the time, and they come to seminary, and some anticipate being missionaries, and some anticipate being pastors. Uh, We think of those who are single, and you may anticipate being married or having children one day. Uh, Some of us in business anticipate starting a business or moving ahead in a career, and we have certain ambitions There is a church. I mean, you built a building. Uh, You want to see it filled with converts and paid me to plant churches someday. Uh, We have many different desires, and all of these could be godly desires, but there are also people here today who have had these desires, and maybe you look back and say, you know, the things I was really looking forward to in life haven't happened to me. Things haven't gone out the way, gone forward the way I planned. Now, as we come to 2 Samuel 7, This is one of the most important passages in the Bible because it's the Davidic covenant comes here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Davidic covenant today because Dr. Belcher is teaching this great Sunday school class on covenants. I'm really going to get to kind of how we got to the Davidic covenant. And here we have David, who is kind of at his pinnacle as king over all of Israel. And he has a dream. He has a great and wonderful godly desire to build a temple. And as he desires to do that, that is not God's plan for David. And yet God gives David something better, which is the content of the Davidic covenant, which is going to be a reference point for the rest of the Old Testament. And it's referred back to many, many times. And so as we go through the passage and we see David's dream and how God's plan was not the same as his, there are generally three things I like to do when I'm in Old Testament narrative. One is we just need to understand what's going on because we're not living in a theocracy with a king like David. And so our life is different in some ways. So we have to explain the text. And then uh, the New Testament tells us that what was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction today. And so these things apply to us. And I'm going to focus a lot on how we would apply this. And maybe since I'm a counseling professor, I tend to make applications that fit to advising people in in their daily lives. And then the third thing we always want to do is to show how all of this points to Christ, because Jesus taught in Luke 24 as he went through the Old Testament, he showed how it all pointed to him. Now, that's low-hanging fruit in this chapter because we're dealing with the Davidic covenant, which points to Christ. So it's kind of easy. But I'm going to work my way through the passage, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. So from this question to you would be, do you want to do something really great for God? 
David does. He's enjoying this season of, of rest. And I preached all the way through First and Second Samuel before I got here years ago. And if you've gone through that, Israel needs a king. And David's, you know, way back in 1 Samuel, he's anointed as the king, but things are kind of rough for a long time. He's got Saul chasing him, trying to kill him. He's got civil war. He's got, uh, you know, the Philistines, you know, it's really tough. And so when it gets to the point where it said David found rest, it's like finally, finally now things are stable. His, his enemies are subdued. And this concept of rest is really important. I guess we saw that in Genesis today. God gives the Sabbath rest, but there was a promise in Deuteronomy that one day God would give them rest from the surrounding nations. And of course, that looks ahead to the rest that Christ comes to bring us as the book of Hebrews talks about. So David has rest. Well, what does he want to do with his rest? Well, it's a very noble desire. He desires to build a house for the ark of God. He, he wants to build the temple. It's almost like he seems embarrassed. I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in tent curtains. And so his desire, by the way, his desire is not something that just was an idea he came up with. In the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 12, the Lord had revealed, in, beginning in verse 10, he describes how when, they, when the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies, it shall come about the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell that I shall command you to bring your burnt offerings. And so there was an anticipation in the law given many years before that one day there would be what became the temple. Now, this is a very commendable desire, right? You know, in the Psalm, in Psalm 132, he says, like, he could give no rest until there should be a, a place for God's ark to rest. And I would contrast David with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, Right? What does Nebuchadnezzar do when he's prosperous? Well, look at Babylon, the great city I've made by my own accomplishment. Well, David instead wants to honor God. What shall I render to the Lord for all of the benefits he's given to me? Other kings, other Near Eastern kings would want to build monuments and temples to their own glory. But David recognizes, as we see repeatedly in Samuel, that it was the Lord who was with him. That's why he had been so successful. So Nathan... And so David does a good thing. He seeks advice. He goes to Nathan the prophet. This is the first appearance of Nathan. He's going to appear later under less pleasant circumstances. And, and Nathan says, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, given what's about to happen, that it's not going to be the right thing to do, you say, well, hey, if Nathan's a prophet, how could he be wrong? Well, the answer would be prophecy is infallible, but prophets are not always infallible. So uh, Nathan is just on his own reasoning, saying, hey, sounds like a great idea. God is with you, but he's not speaking prophetically. But, you know, Nathan could have gotten up two days earlier and said to his wife, I think it's going to rain today. And then maybe it doesn't rain. That didn't make him no longer a valid prophet because he's not saying, thus says the Lord, it's not going to rain. He's just expressing an opinion. So here Nathan is saying, that seems like a great idea. Now we're going to see he was wrong. <laughs> A couple of applications for these first three verses. The first is, how do you handle prosperity? Now, we can all be prone to complain, but we are prosperous. We're living in the midst of a prosperous nation and prosperous times of peace. And sometimes it could be harder to be faithful to God in the midst of plenty than little. Like in Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. The danger of riches is we can be tempted to forget God. We can be 
tempted to live for ourselves. Jesus said it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what a good thing it is in the midst of our material prosperity and also our our spiritual prosperity that rather than living for ourselves and building monuments to ourselves and seeking earthly security, we would want to use these blessings to the glory of God. Um, Some of us are a little older, and perhaps like David, you spent much of your earlier years just struggling to get by. And now you're in a position where you have time you never had before. How do you want to use that time? And now could be a season of life when you use that time to serve God rather than just to play golf or, I'm not saying golf is sinful, but pickleball or whatever they're supposed to do. Um, but to use, boy, look, I have time I didn't have before. Maybe you've struggled financially and now the Lord has blessed you with some material prosperity and you can use that for the glory of God. And that's what, what David did is, is what we should do in the midst of the, the blessing that God gives us. And the reason I assume you have this lovely building is because people have been generous and as God has prospered them, they've given and, and that's a, a good thing. So the blessing of God should move our hearts to be generous and to be generous towards the Lord. Another application is that even wise advisors can sometimes be wrong. And this is particularly relevant to me since I teach counseling. Uh, There's lots in the Bible about the wisdom of seeking counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And so when you're making decisions about your career or romance or education or finances, it can be good in life to seek godly advice. But we must weigh the advice people give us against God's infallible word, which is our only ultimate authority. And here, as Nathan spoke, he was giving an opinion. And here's the point of application. And since I believe we're all counselors in a sense that we all are giving advice to each other and we ought to be giving each other wise advice, is that we need to distinguish between what God has explicitly revealed and our opinion about a certain matter. Uh, For example, I can say infallibly from Scripture, flee sexual immorality, don't steal, only marry in the Lord. You should work hard six days so you can enjoy God's rest on the seventh. Those are things the Bible explicitly commands. But then if someone needs a job, I can't say thou shalt go work at Amazon. I could say, well, Amazon has jobs available, but so does Walmart, so do other places. You see the distinction between giving one's opinion. You know, you could say regarding marriage. Yes, you look like you're ready for marriage. But to say, well, you ought to marry her. I could say, she's a nice girl. She seems to be a lovely believer, but I can't say marry this one. And so we need to be careful as we give advice to distinguish between thus says the Lord, this is my opinion. And then as we receive advice, we need to weigh it as well against the word of God. Because sometimes people who are wise, what they're saying may not necessarily be what God is saying to you. So first point, you want to do something good for God? That's, That's really great. But the second point is, your plan may not be God's plan. Continuing in verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, saying, 
which I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, quite frankly, I imagine the next morning Nathan might have been a little embarrassed. Uh, he, he said, go ahead. But n- now it's not Nathan giving his opinion. It says, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now it is prophetic. And it's a, it's a major word. It's 197 words. It's one of the longest monologues from the Lord, especially since the days of Moses. And, and the essence of the beginning of it is, David, you're not the one to build the temple. And the, the Lord is explaining in, in verses 6 and 7 that you know, the Lord is essentially saying, I'm not needy. It's like in uh, what Solomon finally says when the temple is built, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So the Lord is saying, not now, and I'm not complaining about the present situation, but the correction is very gen- gentle to David. Well, David's plan is rejected for now. Uh, David's himself is not rejected. And especially this word in verse 5, the beginning, go and say to my servant David. And this word servant is an important word. It's an important word because it was what Abraham was called God's servant, uh, the founder of the faith. Moses was called God's servant. Who else is called God's servant? Well, you go in Isaiah, and it's looking ahead to the Messiah, and he's called the servant of the Lord who will come. And even the famous passage in Isaiah 53, speaking of the atonement, how my servant shall deal wisely. And of course, that fits very well because Jesus is the son of David. And so um, David himself is still greatly honored, as we'll see in the next section where the covenant is given. And even in verses 12 and 13, David is essentially told, in verse 13, his son will build a house for the name of God. So the idea of build a house is not a bad idea. It's just David is not the one to do it. And we're told in Chronicles that one reason that God had for this is David was a man of war. Uh, but regardless, this was God's plan. Now, by the way, when you read in Chronicles, you'll also read that David uh, was not the one to build the temple, but he, he went to Lowe's and bought a bunch of stuff so that when it was time, it was ready. <laughs> He did everything he could but build the temple in preparation for it. It was still a passion of his heart. So, application. Uh, You can have dreams that are good dreams with great intentions, and yet your plan may not be God's plan. And that can be really, really hard. And so, I've known people, they had a desire to plant a church, and the church plant failed. I've had friends who wanted to be missionaries in Kazakhstan, and they visited there, and they studied the language, and yet they, their church just didn't believe they were called to that, even though they had that very strong desire. And now it's like 15, 20 years later, they're doing other things. But one of the hardest meetings I ever had in my life was to tell them, we just don't see, as a church, as leaders, that's what you're called to. I've had other friends where their church did say, yes, you want to be missionaries in Myanmar? We're for that. But the money was not raised, not nearly raised, and they were not able to go. And what wonderful dreams and desires these are. We have students who come to the seminary. And just yesterday, we were talking to a former student who came to the seminary with all kinds of zeal to be in ministry. And Providence has worked in a certain way where that's not what's going to happen in his life, at least for a very long time. And, and these are difficult things. And you may 
be single and think, I thought I'd be married and have kids by now, and it, it still hasn't happened. And so we have these desires, you know, with children, and you're thinking, I want to make certain grades, I want to get into a certain school, I want to have success in music or athletics, and, and it's not wrong for you to have those desires. But not always is our plan God's plan, and that can be difficult. And just feeling strongly, this is what you want to do. And we live in a world, actually, I'm wearing a little badge that I bought that says, don't follow your heart. <laughs> um, it's my anti-Disney badge and <laughs> anti-Hallmark movie too, by the way, we're at it. Um, but the point would be is that we, we're in a culture where your feelings dictate what must be right. And there are many people who import that into Christianity as if, well, any strong feeling I have must be of God. Well, Nathan and David both had feelings, but God had other ideas. And, and so we have to be very cautious. And I've heard people say, well, I think God told me to this or God told me to that. Well, those were your feelings. Now, what even makes it more complicated, sometimes the thing you want to do, you'll have friends and advisors say, sounds like a great idea. Go for it. And then, even then, it may not be God's will. It's like James 4. You have people wanted to start a business, and it's not wrong. You know, Proverbs, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs is 21.5, the, 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 the plans of the diligent lead to advantage. And so it's good to plan. By the way, if you want to start a business or a church, you ought to make a plan. And yet, the proverb says, in his heart, a man makes his plan, but the Lord directs his steps. We have to submit our plans to God, and that can be very difficult. It can be hard when we have a desire, or we especially say, I want to do this for the Lord. And he says, no. Now, the good news is that God may have something better for you instead. God who works all things together for good, for his people, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, that he has a purpose. David was the one to, to give the nation security, give them rest, even prepare for the temple so that Solomon could build the temple. Uh, it may be, you know, Paul watered, you know, one watered, the other, one planted, the other watered, God made it grow. And so different generations sometimes uh, are working on something that others will benefit from. So it's okay to have a dream. It's okay to pursue something. But we have to just recognize that God is sovereign and his plans may be different than ours. And furthermore, uh, God doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. And so what we think is necessary may not be according to his purpose. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, to him who lacks might. He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Part of the idea is we're not the ones who strengthen God. He's not the one waiting for us to do stuff so he can accomplish his purpose. He's the one who's accomplishing his purpose. And yes, he may work through us to strengthen us, but he needs none of us. So point one, do you want to do something great for God? That's a good thing. Point two, your plan may not be God's plan. We have to be ready for that. And that can be really hard. But there's the rest of the story. And the rest of the passage is magnificent. I won't be able to address it comprehensively, but it is wonderful and it does relate. And, and the third part of the passage is, even though you want to do great things for God, you need to realize it's God who does great things for you. And that's what matters more. So we continue 
And there's a play on words as we, we move ahead is that, I'll read verses eight to 11. Therefore, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, this is the wonderful play of words that works both in Hebrew and in English, because house can mean a building or house can mean a dynasty. And so the Lord says, you want to build a house for me? No, I'm going to build a house for you. And it's going to be better than you could have ever imagined. And he reminds David that the Lord has already done great things for David. He's already chosen him to be ruler over Israel. He already has a great name, and his name is going to continue to be great and even greater through history. It's a name everybody knows. And the blessing on God's house will continue, that Israel will be securely planted in the land. And then continuing in verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Whenever he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words, all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David wanted the privilege of building a temple for God, but the Lord says, no, you're getting so much better. I'm going to build a house for you. And in this list in verses 8 to 17, Bruce Walkie counts 10 blessings. And there are some to David, there's some to Solomon, and there's some that are looking ahead ultimately to Christ. And it's just magnificent. And of course, now we can look at some of these and see how they've been fulfilled in history, that Israel was established as a world power at that time. And then David Solomon, David's son Solomon does reign after him, and he does build the temple. And when the temple is built, Solomon acknowledges that God has kept his promise to his father. Uh, verse 20 of 1 Kings 8, Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David, and sat on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then we know the history of the Old Testament, that David's dynasty reigns for 400 years. And 1 Kings, 2 Kings are a record of God's faithfulness to his covenant, even though the kings aren't faithful themselves. Some are chastised, as was warned, including Solomon himself. And yet, even after their sin is so great, and when you know in uh, the 6th century before Christ and, and Israel is, or Judah is sent into exile. Israel had been already sent into exile. Even then, God's promises are not taken away. And this is something so wonderful for David. It's that verse 15, that 
I will not take away my loving kindness as I took it away from Saul. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Even when they were faithless, even when they were sent into exile and defeated and because of their covenant unfaithfulness, God's promise still stood firm. In this section of the Davidic covenant during the dark days of the exile, when without the Davidic covenant, they might have been without hope. God had said this Davidic dynasty would be an everlasting dynasty. And so there they are in Babylon. There they are in exile. And for example, in the book of Amos, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bowels of the terrible crash. And so it seemed like, like a tree cut down, that the house of David has been wiped out. It's over. But then from the stump of what seemed to be dead, new life appears. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then back to Amos, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. I will wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild as in the days of old. So here we have God's covenant faithfulness. And again, it's looking forward to a king who will reign forever, which of course brings us to Christ. That Jesus Christ comes as the ultimate fulfillment of all of these promises. That Christ was born in, you know, at the incarnation The angel says he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now let's go back to David. This is really great, isn't it? I thought I wanted to build a temple. I'm a little disappointed. The Lord said no. But look what the Lord is doing instead. And and we could go through in detail in terms of even the language here where David is called a servant and Jesus Christ comes as the true servant who gives his life as a ransom for his people. He is the one who has a great name, the son of David, the son of God. He was chastised not for his own iniquities, but for our iniquities, as it says in Isaiah 53 about the servant. And he is the one who builds a church. We sang the church is one foundation. No matter what enemies we have, we're told by Jesus, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It will last forever. He reigns on David's throne and he will reign forever and ever. In Hebrews 1, you know, your throne is everlasting. Now, why does all that matter to us today? Well, the New Testament tells us all of God's promises are ours in Christ. We who were once excluded, we who would not have been part of Israel under the old covenant have now been adopted. We've been grafted in. There's also a couple of very practical things. If, if God so kept promises to David over millennia, right? He's kept his promises over many centuries. Every one of them has happened. Can we not trust God to keep his promises to us? Christ will come again. The wicked will be judged. He will reign forever and ever. No matter how messed up the world seems to be, no matter hopeless it seems to be even to be a Christian in an evil age, the promise of God will occur just as much as in the hopelessness of Israel, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the promises of God. He will return because it depends upon his faithfulness and not ours. And then one other application. If God is so faithful to his covenant promises, even to people who don't deserve it. We should be people who keep our covenant promises. I think of marriage. In marriage, we make a covenant. We say, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. 
I recognize the Bible allows for people who are in abusive situations and unfaithful situations when the other person has broken the covenant. Um, that's tragic, but that's not your fault if that happens. But Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man separate. And so as God has been faithful, we, we don't follow the world in giving up easily, but we're faithful to the covenant that we've made as God empowers us to do because he's been so faithful to us. So, three points. You may want to do something great for God, but God's plan and your plan may not be the same. But what matters is God does something great for you. He built a house for David who wanted to build a house for God. And the final application would just be, as I think about this, is that has God done great things for you? Virtually every religion on earth focuses upon what we do for God. I lived in Saudi Arabia for several years, and I watched how people were trying within the realm of Islam to do enough to hope they would go to heaven. Enough alms, enough prayers, enough pilgrimage. We lived near Mecca, and you'd see people coming by the tens of thousands, hoping they'd done enough for God. I've traveled in other countries. I've traveled in countries dominated by false branches of the so-called Christian church, where people again imagine that they have to accomplish enough good works and sacraments to offset their own sins so they have enough merit that somehow they could do enough for God that God would accept them. But that's not what biblical Christianity is. The Bible is not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The gospel is... The Lord Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That Christ came and died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. That we have a righteousness not of our own, obtained by keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. And truly becoming a Christian, truly being converted, involves repentance of trying to earn God's favor by living well enough and relying solely upon what God has done for us in the gospel of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. It's God who has done great things for us, and his redemption is sure because he keeps his covenant and his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for a gospel of grace. Lord, I pray today there are among us today children, adults, older people, and we have dreams. Some of us have had our dreams shattered. Help us to trust you that you will do great things for us. You have done great things for us in Christ. Help us to submit to your will and help us to find how we can best serve you even if it wasn't our plan. Help us as well to forsake any hope we have in doing enough for you that we could earn our way to you. Thank you for Christ who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves as he died in the place of all who will believe in him and has given his perfect merit, made us rich. Father, if there are any here who came thinking it was up to them to do for you, help them to, to look to Christ who has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.